Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Um, had Beecher read the corresponding passage from Matthew sixteen thirteen through 20 this morning. As if you have been with us during our study of Mark, you know we have really uh, constricted ourselves, limited ourselves to just the book of Mark. We have, with rare exception, gone to the book of Matthew or Luke or John to help us better understand or to preach the corresponding passages uh, that would be in those books as they relate to the book of Mark. Because the main reason being, we believe that as the Word of God, He has organized the books of the Bible for specific means, for specific uh, lessons to be taught. He has a particular message for us in the book of Mark that is different from the book of Luke that is different from the book of Matthew. And we want to know what is the message for us out of the book of Mark, specifically this morning out of the book of Mark chapter 8. However, there comes times when we are uh, served well by looking at corresponding passages, and we will do that this morning as we will flip back and forth between Mark 8, 27 through 30, and Matthew 16, 13 through 20. With this passage today in Mark 8, we mark the middle of our study of the book of Mark. And the first half commences here, but converges into what will be a thrilling second half. This is the midway point that marks the turning from Christ, showing the world his power as the Son of Man to the events that are to come soon here in Jerusalem that will culminate in his death, in his burial and then in his glorious resurrection. The call, if you will, of being the Messiah. We have made mention many times that the watershed moment, the turning point in the book of Mark, is this passage in 27 through 30. And so we will look at it this morning. One of the questions that every person has to answer in their life, ultimately, is, Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the title of my sermon this morning. Who do you say that he is? And who you say that Jesus is has not simply eternal ramifications for your soul, but but has ramifications for today, has ramifications for tomorrow, has ramifications for this week. And let me explain. As I mentioned in First Light this morning, if you weren't there, The world that we live in today, specifically the Western world, the United States of America, much of the way our world is defined and many of the people that you're going to run into this week or see on the street or talk to, their life is defined by pleasure. What is going to give me the most pleasure and I will pursue that and it's pursued across the board. We pursue pleasure in our relationships We pursue pleasure from drink. We pursue pleasure from food. We pursue pleasure from from activity. We pursue pleasure from, from working out. We pursue pleasure from hobbies. We pursue pleasure from from seasons of the year. We pursue pleasure from vices of sin, of, of, of pornography, or all of whatever it may be. All of it is, is oftentimes live for pleasure. How do I gain pleasure? And, and where do I find that pleasure? And where will it give me pleasure 
today because we all know that this world is difficult. So where can I find a reprieve from that difficulty and I'll mark that and I'll look for it. And if we find a bit of reprieve here, we'll oftentimes come back to it. But the claim of Jesus Christ, which is what is not only uh, foundational for us for eternity, but that will have ramifications for you today and tomorrow in this week, is that the claim of Christ as the Son of God is really the claim that he is the pathway to joy. He's the, he's the pathway to peace. He's the pathway to pleasure. And so we come on Sunday mornings and we come throughout the week and we open our Bibles with the understanding that following Jesus Christ as the Messiah is the culmination, is the highest amount of pleasure we can have as people. That nothing else can give us this pleasure. Pleasure that lasts not for just a few minutes or moments or seconds or hours, but, but years and ultimately eternity. So we approach this passage in Mark 28, 27 through 30 with a realization, a sobering realization, that this question of who is Jesus actually has practical application, not just for eternity, but for this week. Because if you believe that he is the son of the living God, the Messiah, then you can walk out this life tomorrow morning, this afternoon, come what may, knowing that the pleasure, even amidst the difficulty of your life, is incomparable to anything else you could look for. That the, that the pleasure of knowing Jesus and following him gains you more pleasure than relationships that are perfect, than the job situation bringing in the right amount of money, than the health being right where you need it to be. Whatever it is. So look with me at this passage, Mark 8, 27 through 30. And as we look at it, I would call your attention to the truth that we will learn in this passage, which is this, the ability, and we might add even the joy that comes from confessing Christ as Savior comes through divine intervention. The ability to confess Christ as Savior comes only through divine intervention. Look with me at the passage as I will read it for us. You will note many similarities to the passage in Matthew. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I'm going to divide our passage up this morning into, into three different sections. 20, verse 27 and 28, we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus to the world? In verse 29, we're going to ask the question, who do you say that he is? And then in verse 30, we will see the confirmation and commission. Who is Jesus to the world? 
Now, you must note that they're on a trip here. They're in Bethsaida, as we saw from last week in verse 22, and that's sort of the the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and they now take a trip 25 miles approximately 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. This area was a a very pagan area. It was an area that was not devoted to the worship of God by any stretch of the imagination. It was a very fruitful area. It had a great agricultural area. It It was an area of great Baal and false god worship. And they made this trip, and apparently either somewhere along the way or as they got closer... Christ engages with the disciples with a question not directed to them specifically as much as it is getting their feedback on on who others say that Jesus is. Ultimately, as we will see with the practical application that is to come in verse 29. Who do you say, who do do people say that I am? And you note that they say, you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. We're told in Matthew 16, some say he's Jeremiah or or one of the prophets. Mark 3, verse 22. The scribes come from Jerusalem and they say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Matthew 13, verse 55 and 56. Some say that isn't he simply the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, are not all his sisters with us? Christ simply asking, who does the world say that I am? And the world's view of Jesus is as broad and diverse as the diversity of this world. Last night in preparation for this sermon, I, I went to YouTube and I typed in, who is Jesus? And there's a multitude of different on the street interviews And the answers were fascinating. Consider this list of descriptions of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's someone that won't judge me. Who is Jesus? He's someone who preached love and compassion. Who is Jesus? He was the first hippie. Who is Jesus? He is the one who accepts everybody. Who is Jesus? He's an historical figure. He's a carpenter. He's the baby in the manger, meek and mild. Who is Jesus? He's a loving therapist. He's the dreamy Jesus, the one who comes in the garb of white light that tells you what you should do or where you should go. Who is Jesus? He's a hero. He's the role model. Who is Jesus? He's the nativity piece right alongside Santa or the gingerbread man. Who is Jesus? He's a preacher, a religious leader, a prophet, a miracle worker, a good teacher, a political revolutionary, and on and on and on and on. And if any one of those descriptions is how one would describe Jesus, they base their entire life on no hope. Because none of those things are who Jesus is. Now, some of those things may be what Jesus did or some characteristics of Jesus, but that's not who Jesus is. But if our hope rests on the truth that he is the Christ, the chosen one, the appointed one, as Messiah means, the Son of God, the Savior, 
then the object of our hope is not only unchangeable, but eternal. So I ask you this morning, who is Jesus? Can that be said of you this morning, that your hope rests on the truth that he's the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah? That takes us to our second point found in verse 29. Who do you say Jesus is? Christ then asking the disciples, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the one. Peter, always ready to bring his hand up first. You, if you've ever taught a little bunch of children and you encourage them, raise your hand first. Peter's the one who doesn't raise his hand, just blurts out. You're the Christ. You are the anointed one by God, the Messiah. This is the question ultimately, as I began with, that everybody has to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And we have, we've now spent eight chapters in the book of Mark over almost six months. So what is your answer this morning? Who do you say that Jesus is? Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, points to the fact that who you say that he is has eternal ramifications. Because if you confess, if you proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want to spend here a few minutes looking at the fact that Christ is the Son of God as told to us by God's Word. Don't take my word for it. Hear from God's Word. And if He then, because He is the Son of God, proclaimed to us by God, then His message of repent and believe as found in Mark 1.15 bears eternal significance and bears upon our hearts and minds this morning the demand that we listen. To, who his, to what he claims to be. The claim of Christ is found in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to, him, I am, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Christ is the Son of God, as God says that he is, then that claim must be taken very seriously. That is what everybody wants, isn't it? They want to go to heaven. They want to be reconciled to God. And the question boils down to, how do you be reconciled to God? And that's where people go astray. I can be a good person. I can pray enough prayer. I can go to church enough times. I can do enough good deeds. But none of those things are ultimately the answer because the only answer to how you restore a relationship with God broken by sin is by the person and work of Jesus Christ. No one comes to restoration of relationship with the Father except through Jesus. So who do you say that Jesus is? He's the promised son of Eve as found in Genesis chapter 3 the promised son who would crush the head of the serpent. He's 
the one pictured in the ark as the one who will save the world from the wrath of God in Genesis chapter 7. Christ is pictured as the sacrificial lamb who would cover the sins of the people in Genesis 22. He's pictured as the ark of the covenant, as the one who would dwell among us in Exodus 25. Christ is pictured as Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days as Christ the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth. The grave for three days is found in Matthew 12. He's the the fourth person standing in the fire, fiery furnace with Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The one who would save and keep us from being scarred, keep us from being overcome by the fiery wrath of God. He's the one in John 1 verse 2 who we are told he, Christ, was in the beginning with God. God tells us in his word in John 8, 23 and 24, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, Christ speaking, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image. He's the picture of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's told to us as in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts we must honor Christ the Lord as holy and there was no one holy except the Lord. So who does God say that Jesus is? He says that he is his son the Messiah, the appointed, the anointed one that has come and that would come and save the world for those who repent and believe. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's move to point number three found in verse 30. The confirmation and commission. The confirmation and commission. In Mark 8, you're only going to see the commission, which is that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So if you are in Mark 8, flip in your Bibles over to Matthew 16, where I want to note for you the confirmation as well as the commission. Matthew 16, you'll find the confirmation in verse 17. Peter in verse 16, proclaiming you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And notice Christ's answer. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That this truth of who Jesus is as the Messiah cannot be revealed by men but by God. Now consider that fact this morning. If you're under the sound of my voice and you do not know Christ, there is no way that I can reveal him to you to the point that you will turn in saving grace and repentance to trust him for eternity. I cannot say or speak well enough to help you understand that. It can only be revealed to you by God. Now he, in his sovereign grace and mercy, will use the words that I speak. 
But he is the one who has to open your eyes to reveal that to you. But consider the fact that if God is the one who opens the eyes to reveal it, then your eyes are opened for eternity. In fact, that is, that is the confirmation in many ways. Blessed are you. If you're here this morning and you have confessed Christ as the Savior, you have repented of your sin, you have followed him in saving faith, then you are blessed. You are not simply just blessed by by good food or by a good job or by a wife or by a husband or by a family or whatever the blessings are materially. You are blessed by God. Your blessing is unable to be removed because it's not based on your confession, but it's based upon the object of your confession, which is Christ, the Son of the living God. The ability to confess Christ as Savior comes through divine intervention. Now go with me back to Mark 8, and I want to show you that. Mark 8, and let's look at 22. We looked at this last week. If you're in your Bibles and if you're using the Pew Bible, which I would encourage you to do, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find it on page 844. Look at verse 22 through 26, and here's what I want to note for you. There is a physical analogy, as we looked at last week, in 22 through 26, that is manifested as a spiritual truth in 27 through 30. Note it. First, you have the situation in 22 and 23. There's a blind man, and he comes to Christ, being led by his friends to Christ. In 27, we have a situation. Christ is on this road. He's on this way. He's approaching the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks a question. Look at verse 23. Christ, in the healing of this man, gives him partial sight. Look at verse 28. The disciples have partial sight. You're unlike very few. We know few others like you. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, an esteemed man of which there are very few. Partial sight to his greatness. But then look what Christ does to the blind man in verse 25. He takes his partial sight and he opens his eyes and he gives him 20-20 vision. He gives him restored sight so that he sees everything clearly. And what does Christ do to the disciples with the question again, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Gives him spiritual sight. That's the picture of 22 through 26 and it's played out for us in 27 through 30. That blind man can't have sight but by the intervention of God and we cannot have spiritual sight but by the intervention of God. And if you have been given spiritual sight, there is a blessing immovable for you because you have sight and you can see that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God and it has been given to you by God. There's application here for us, certainly. 
that whatever is happening in your life, a Christian can always say with eternal certainty that they are blessed. You know, we have that sort of phrase everybody uses in Texas, how you doing? Doing good. Having a good day? Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing good. Right? You, in fact, I was walking to the grocery store this week and I was thinking, well, I might see somebody. What am I going to ask them? How you doing? They're going to say, I'm doing good. You know, what can I ask them to get them to say something else? Maybe I get them to say, I'm doing bad. That would probably do it. It's so hard. But as the Christian, you can actually say that. I'm doing good. Why? Because it's not based upon whether my, my marriage is doing well or whether my, my finances are doing well or whether my kids are doing well or whether my health is doing or whatever or the, this nation or the government, whatever it is. I'm doing good. I'm blessed because I know Christ. Amen? But the commission here, look at the commission. The commission for the disciples is different than the commission for us. Verse 30 of Mark 8, and he strictly charged them to tell no one. Why? Why would Christ charge the disciples to tell no one about him? Well, fear not, this charge doesn't last for long. It lasts till about chapter 10, and then it all changes. Christ is wanting to communicate that he's the savior of men from sin, not as the savior from Rome. The Messiah is the one that the Israelites, the Jews, have been looking for. The oppression of Rome is what many of them hoped Christ would cast off. And they had an inkling, Peter did, still, as we do oftentimes, just a partial sight. They knew he was the Christ, the Messiah, but they didn't get what the Messiah meant. And we see that immediately as we will see next week in verse 31. You might just direct your eyes down to that verse. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must rule and reign and conquer all the worlds of the earth. Now that's not what it says at all, does it? He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said to them this plainly. And Peter says, no. No. They understood he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand what Messiahship entailed. Christ wanting now in their partial sight of understanding to not have them go proclaim the wrong message of the Messiah. But instead, now, this isn't much of the reason why this is a watershed moment in Mark. is because here, for the next couple of chapters, he devotes himself to teaching the disciples about what the Messiah means and what that looks like for those who follow him. Certainly for us, we must understand that we have now been given the charge to proclaim Christ to the world, but just like the Messiah, the disciples, please get this, that we have been given the task to communicate to others the true nature of Christ. That to not do so is to communicate a false Christ. That's one of the reasons why, by His grace, that you will hear and that you will see and that you will sing and that you will see the picture of here in a few minutes with communion, the gospel every Sunday here at FCF. 
to not only that gospel be a reminder and an encouragement to your own soul's position before God as a saved child, but also to equip you for the work of gospel ministry, equipping you for communicating the true nature of who is Jesus Christ. That Christ is the one who came and suffered. That Christ is the one who died on our behalf. That Christ is the one who calls us to follow him in love. That Christ is the one who will come again to judge. That Christ is the one now seated at the right hand of the Father and with whom we have intercession before God with. If you are here today and the question of who is the Christ is all of a sudden pricked you and you've thought, who is the Christ for me? I'm not sure. Then I would plead with you, do not leave this building until you have talked with someone. Talk with me, talk with someone around the pews next to you. They would love to answer the question, help you answer the question from the Bible of who is the Christ? Who is Jesus? And we might ask uh, other people, even during this Christmas season, maybe especially during this Christmas season, you might just ask them in the grocery store or in the convenience store or the waiter at your table, who is Jesus? Is he the baby in the manger? Who is Jesus? And then I would encourage you to simply offer to meet with them. Walk them through the book of Mark, four, goth, four passages at a time. You'll get through in four weeks. And, and let them see by the claims of Christ to see who is Jesus. I began our message this morning by talking about pleasure Claiming Christ as the Son of God is the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to peace. It's the pathway to pleasure. And I would encourage you to come next week as we will see what that path looks like. We have recognized that Jesus was the appointed agent of salvation by God. But Peter and Often we do not realize the depth and the cost of his Messiahship, but praise be to God that we have the ability, if you do this morning, to confess Christ as Savior because that has come through divine intervention intervention by God to give you saving grace and faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to know this morning Christ as the Messiah. What a joy it is to realize that that truth is not because we sat in church long enough, we read the Bible enough, we memorized the right verses, we did right things, we modeled our lives after. None of those things are what gave us that truth. It's you blessing us divinely intervening upon our behalf and taking our blind eyes and opening them to the truth. Oh, Father, and plant upon our hearts the magnificent nature of that truth. Father, we thank you for your son, that he wasn't just a good teacher, a good preacher, a prophet or a role model. He was the perfect son of God. He was the appointed means of salvation and that he accomplished that work which we would never be able to accomplish. 
the means of restoration to you, our God. And Father, I pray that if we, if there are those here who maybe for the first time this morning realize that the Jesus they have claimed is not the Jesus that we see in this passage, that you might grant them humility to repent and trust in the true Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray now for our time of great joy at the communion table. What a wonder it is to picture, to present a picture of the gospel, the bread, the cup, the body of Christ, the body of Christ as the church, communing, relating together in love. Father, we, we rejoice in that. May we take it with great joy this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.